Hey everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. If this is your first time here, my name is Corey. I'm here with Matlock. And you know what? On Bible Discovery TV, we're reading through the Bible in a year. So here on this program, we discuss big topics that pop up as we're reading through the Bible. And we also like to discuss your questions and comments as well. So thank you so much for sending them when you have them. Uh, and yeah, Matlock, why don't you tell everyone what scripture, the main show, Bible Discovery, and the Bible Guide kind of covered for this week. So what sure. were we supposed to read? Yeah, you were supposed to read Acts 9 to 26. So the big chunk of Acts, yeah, intense. It is an intense read, let That's me tell right. You that. And the questions we have pertaining to that are all regarding Acts. And they're about uh, Sabbath, whether or not uh, the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday. We're dealing with suffering and hardship. And also baptism, which brings me to the big question of today, which yeah. we will answer at the end of the show. That is... In Acts, we read a lot about baptism. This is a viewer question, by the way. Some people believe in ba infant baptism versus adult baptism. Some believe in sprinkling versus immersion. What is correct according to the Bible? How should we be baptized? Big question. There's no surprise there. Another controversial question. Corey, to start things off, though, yeah. as a primer, sure. I have a question for you from yeah. Jesus A. Okay, I'm assuming it's not Jesus. Yeah, it'd be Jesus. I'm assuming sure. it's... It's Jesus, yeah. okay? All right, it's regards to Acts and a couple other places. Hello, just want to ask, is there any proof how Apostle Paul becomes some of this personality, biblical, historical, or whatever? Paul as an Israelite, tribe Benjamin, Romans, uh, a Pharisee, a Hebrew at the same time as a Pharisee. Lastly, how Paul became a Jew. And yet he also says that he is a Roman. Thank you and more power to your sight. God bless you in your ministry. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, so we basically just know what the Apostle Paul tells us in Scripture. And then we know things, uh, like how things generally went in the first century based off of some of the archaeology from the different sites. Like we know that Saul, Saul, uh, Paul, whose other name is Saul, uh, he was from the city of Tarsus. So we can take a look at the history of Tarsus. But, but from... Um, like a little bit later of Jewish sources, we can kind of see what the process was in training to become a Pharisee. But other than that, other than like the books of the New Testament that he's written, that is history in and of itself. So we have Paul's witness about himself that it looks as if the early church pretty much wholesale accepted that. So these were people who knew Paul, uh, you know, passed on this tradition as well to the early, you know, to the early church and Christians who would later write history. So like, as you said, we know that Paul was a Jew. So Jews were also called Hebrews. So, um, you know, sometimes they're called Hebrews, sometimes they're called Jews, same, same group of people. Uh, so that's how he can be a, both a Hebrew and a Jew. It's the same group of people. Um, a Pharisee meant that Paul was trained beyond his normal profession. So here's where a little bit of history can, can kick in for us. We know that uh, children were taught a profession, specifically men were taught a profession, women as well, but definitely men because they were going to grow up and presumably get married and need to support a family. Uh, they were taught the profession of their fathers. So we know from Acts and, and uh, even other books that Paul was a tent maker by profession. So his father had been a tent maker and he would have taught Paul how to be a tent maker. But we also learn that Paul was training to become a Pharisee because we see him in Acts uh, 
in this pharisaical role being able to persecute the Church of Christ. So what that what that normally meant for a Jewish young man is that he would travel to he would receive special training from his his local rabbi, but then he would travel to Jerusalem to learn from teachers in the temple. Okay, so he was a Jew, he was a Pharisee. We also learn that uh, Paul was a Roman citizen uh, and that he was a Roman citizen by birth. Now that's important because uh, you could earn Roman citizenship for a few different ways. You know, if you were um, indent, you could get a patron essentially in Roman society and, and become a citizen. There was a few different paths to do it, but Paul was born a Roman citizen. So that means that his family somehow acquired Roman citizenship in their past, and Paul was born to father and mother who were citizens of Rome. Now, this makes Paul in a really, uh, you know, really good situation. He is set up uh, because he now has certain rights as a Roman citizen that he wouldn't have if he was not a Roman citizen. And that's why we see at the end of Acts him being able to appeal to Caesar. We also see a couple times when he's imprisoned and beaten, Paul uses this. Did you know you were beating a Roman citizen? And they get scared because Roman citizens should not have been, they were not allowed to have been beaten without a hearing, without a trial, without being proven guilty. So this set Paul up, you know, for, for success in a few different areas of his life. Now, it's not surprising that someone, that a Jew from Tarsus specifically would get Roman citizenship because when you look at, you know, certain uh, New Testament scholars have said that when you look at the city of Tarsus, it was pretty multicultural and it, 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 there was a lot of centers of learning. So Paul may have been exposed to uh, a lot of different ideas when he was growing up, which may have, you know, pushed him more towards uh, learning how to become a Pharisee, but it it comes out later because Paul is really familiar when you're reading through the New Testament. He seems to be really familiar with Greek philosophy and different Greek ideas and different religious ideas. And perhaps this came from his upbringing in Tarsus in a multicultural city. We also know that, that Paul had family living in Jerusalem, specifically his sister was living in Jerusalem because we're told that his nephew, his sister's son, was the one who traveled from Jerusalem to Caesarea to warn him of an assassination plot against his life. So that's pretty much it. There's no archeological remains that, um, that I'm aware of that really can give us more insight into the life of Paul. But again, the New Testament itself is history. These are letters that were originally written by Paul. So this is his testimony about himself. So I hope that helps. That's that's what I got. I think that's good. I have nothing really else to add. It's yeah. a historical comment on it's important there. Yeah. Paul, I, now I have I, written I have written an article about this. Yes. So I think it's on our website. You the, can just and search it. Just Paul. to clarify, it search it on the web. I will post it in the, in the comment section sure. so people can access it. Okay. But it also says here, yet yeah, he was also a Roman. So we know that Roman was not a uh I talked about Roman citizenship, yeah. Perfect, yeah, because yep. it doesn't mean that he was like a biological Roman. The Romans were so vast. Yeah, he, yes. he had Roman citizenship. Exactly. And people of, of it, there, like I said, there was a few different paths. You can look into it. There's a few different paths to get Roman citizenship, but it, right. was a, it was a privileged position. And so Paul's parents had that, and he was born into it. Right. I guess the point here is to be made, he's not a Hellenistic Jew. He's not like, uh, 
just because he's Roman doesn't mean that he's not fully Jewish. Being Roman is right. just yeah, it's just status. It has nothing to do with your heritage or your parentage. Yeah, or, not necessarily. Or, exactly. Absolutely. Okay. okay cool. Okay, Mel. Question for you from Acts chapter thirteen. Yes. Paul says this. Many religious groups and ministries believe that the Sabbath day was changed to the first day of the week, Sunday. What are your teachings on this according to the Bible? Okay. So first up, um, the Sabbath wasn't necessarily changed to the Sunday at a later date. It Christ became the Sabbath. Christ is our rest. That's attested to in Matthew 11. On the Sabbath day, he goes, come out all you who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. And rest from what? From your works. This is uh, said about in Luke 23. I'll read it here. Um, Jesus is buried. He's crucified and then buried. Um, and then, uh, then they took it down and wrapped it in linen and shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. This is verse 53, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So Christ dies, then he rests on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Then he rises again on the Sunday, okay? Because then it says, but on the first day of the week, Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone was rolled away from the tomb. But when they went, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Long story short, which we all know. So, on uh, Resurrection Sunday, Christ rose. He rested on the Sabbath. Everyone rested on the Sabbath, right? He was crucified on the Friday. Okay. So uh, that's kind of the introduction here um, to this whole idea. In Acts 20, it says, verse 7, I believe, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Okay. On the first day of the week, they got together to have communion. Yep. Okay? That means they're literally celebrating Jesus Christ on the Sunday. Yeah, uh, on the first day. On the first day of the week, right? Which is, which is what it is. And then we have here in uh, 1 Corinthians 16... I'll pull up real fast. My version of fast. I pulled that one up too because I was like, ah, when he was talking yes. about it. <laughs> and then also, as you're going to say, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no, so there will be no collecting when I come. Okay? So, in yeah, other words. So this is about collecting um, money tithing. to take to Jerusalem. Yes, yeah, exactly. Jerusalem so the point here we said is that he comes in on Sundays. And so it's well, and and that and they're gathering on Sundays. So again, yes. it's that the church is gathering together on the first day of the week on the Sunday for communion and and the collecting of alms, the collecting of of, of um, tithe. Yes, exactly. So, okay, so now we kind of have that. But is that okay? Christians are getting together. We also this is attested to. I think it's by Pliny the Younger. I can't. It's I believe it's by Pliny. It's attested to by a Roman historian who is talking about Christians. Um, he talks about how they gather on the first day of the week. Right. I'm yes. going to have to look it up and so, pop it in the comment section. But The concept of, now, we got into, like, why do Christians celebrate on the Sundays? Okay, because that's what the early Christians were doing. Because the Sabbath was resting, and now 
we rest in Christ, who is new creation. So we celebrate new creation, not old creation, if that makes sense. But anyways, so that's kind of like a, a way of looking at it, not the way. But anyways, that being said, uh, Hebrews 4 also offers insight into this idea about Sabbath rest into Christ, okay? But I'm going to read some, uh, starting in verse 2, and I'll just read, I'll just read chapter 4, okay? And we'll go from there. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. <clears throat> For we who have believed enter the, that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has... So, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to <coughs> enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying that through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, so he's talking about what true rest is, as opposed to the old rest of the Sabbath rest. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that Israelites did earlier. Then it goes on here, which is really interesting. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any other two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay, so it goes on there to talk about the nature of God's word itself, but how important it is how we're all exposed and naked before him, because it's not about the works, but resting in God himself. Because it's not about anymore, about finding rest, just to like, you know, not doing anything. It's not about that. It's always been about resting in God. And then when Christ was crucified and rested and then redeemed humanity, that is what we celebrate. Christ says we can now rest in Christ. That's the general principle that has been moved onwards. So you can say that um, Sabbath has been uh, replaced by our celebration of the new covenant. Um, or you could say the Sabbath has moved into, because it has, Christ has moved Sabbath into the celebration of new life. But we don't follow the Sabbath in the same rigid way that the New Test, the Old Testament prescribed. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you didn't follow the Sabbath, you would stone someone. Why? It was a covenantal sign that could not be broken. Uh, you, people will know that you're my people, God says, when you rest on the seventh day. So the, the Sabbath was a sign of uh to the world that israel was god's people so it was a covenantal sign well what's the new covenantal sign the resurrection of jesus so there's a new covenantal sign that takes place that doesn't mean that sabbath is completely done with it just simply means that the sabbath is in christ now so it's been elevated it has ascended to uh something bigger something more glorious so that was what i would say is the gist of it. do you have anything you want to add to that yeah, just that, just that I don't like the language of, of, I know people do say this, 
and teach this that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, but I really don't like that language for all of the reasons that you've just said. Yeah. It's not as if Christians were like, okay, we don't like Jewish Sabbath, so let's move it to Sunday. This is our Sabbath. To be honest, there was no resting going on in the Gentile world, at least for most people in the Roman Empire in the first century. They did, most people did not get a day off unless you were already uh, well within Judaism and, and able to take, like, like maybe in the Roman province of Judea, but elsewhere in the Roman Empire, to convert to a religion, think about as like a household slave, to convert to a religion and then just say to your employer, well, or to, to your master, all right, well, now I'm taking a day off of rest and I can't do anything, can't work for you. That's not gonna fly, it's not gonna work. It was not within the rights of the slave to just do that. So a lot of people would not have been able to uh, adhere to the Sabbath. And, and this was part of, you know, the, 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 the gospel opening up to the Gentiles as well, where we look at Acts chapter 10 and 11 with the, with the conversion of Cornelius and, and Peter being so surprised because the, because the Holy Spirit fills Gentiles uh, and, and allows them, you know, brings them into the kingdom of God without them first conforming their lives to the Mosaic law or the law of the Old Testament. And then we see this really come to a head in Acts chapter 15, where the Jerusalem council, the Christian Jerusalem council has to figure this out. Okay, well, are we going to enforce that Gentile believers be circumcised and become essentially proselytes to Judaism before becoming Christians? Or are we just going to allow them to be Christians? And based off of the testimony of the Holy Spirit filling Gentile believers as they were, not circumcised, eating, you know, food that was unlawful according to the Old Testament and living in a way that was unlawful according to the Old Testament. So they did not, they did not say, well, they have to get circumcised and they have to follow Sabbath. That were, those requirements were not there. There were a few requirements that involved sexual uh, sin, you know, abstaining from sexual sin and abstaining from elements of their culture that were obviously evil. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 15. Uh, you know, it's really interesting study in and of itself. So, so the Sabbath rest was not imposed on first century Gentile believers, Gentile converts to Christianity. It just, it just wasn't. So I think for us to utilize that language of Christianity just replaced uh, the Saturday Sabbath with the Sunday Sabbath, I think that's really inaccurate. But they did make a point of gathering on Sundays either late at uh, early in the morning or late at night right. uh, with one another because it was still important to them. And they gathered on the Sunday because they were celebrating Christ's resurrection and they were remembering him with communion. Right. And if you're looking at life, not like a rigid grid and a checklist, you look at life like a story or a narrative that's unfolding. The Passover itself, right? Christ was the, had the Passover meal um, with communion. And then mm -hmm. Christ's sacrifice is the Passover. Passover was pointing to Christ. All the festivals and everything, Sabbath itself is pointing to who? Everything points to Christ. That's the whole point. Yeah. And, and, then, and then Paul says this in, in Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Mm -hmm. These are a shadow of things to come, yeah. but the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow is something that points to the actual person. It's not the person, right? So that whole point is that Christ is the center point of history, 
and he's casting that shadow, and that shadow has the things that reflect him, right? So in other words, Sabbath points to Christ, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, and that's what's so important here. And that's what people, I think, need to understand. It's not that um, we're, you know, you're just replacing the Sabbath. Oh, we don't need this anymore. No, the narrative has continued. Yeah. Christ is the new Passover lamb. So do we celebrate Passover? Well, no, but sort of in a way because we're carrying the password narrative has continued on through Christ. And he's the true Passover. Death truly passes over you when you belong to him. Right? You truly have your uh, his blood over your gates and in your heart. Did you see what I'm saying there? Anyways, the point to be made here is that um the Sabbath itself is not inherent. I th- I know, we've been pretty clear. It, yeah. it, it's not the rule in itself, right? Christ is the standard and everything points to Christ. Anyways, um, apart from that, I think that answers. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I, 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 I hope more... that helps. If you want more clarification, let us know. Right. Yeah. Perfect. I think so. All right. All right. Corey? Yes, Matlock? I have a question for you. Please. Okay. It is a viewer question, again, about Acts because we're in Acts and we have a whole bunch of Acts questions. I have a question says Peta. In scripture, we find a constant association of suffering, hardship with joy, and rejoicing. Mm-hmm. How do Christians find joy and rejoice through these afflictions? Yes. Good question. It's mysterious, isn't it? Yeah. It's Because it's, it, it's counterintuitive. Because suffering is hard and hardship is hard. So we think hard equals bad. Uh, but yeah, let's look at a couple of those, a, cu- a few, three. Let's look at three of those scriptures. Um, so Romans 5 uh, verses three to five. I'm, I'm going to read one to five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that all sounds really good, doesn't it? We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we've got God's grace. We have peace with God. And then we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And that's talking about one day we will see God face to face. We rejoice in this hope because this life isn't all that there is. But then verse three goes on. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so I don't know exactly how it happens. If you're asking the process, I I, I cannot illuminate the process for you too much. But if anyone could, it was Paul. Paul's writing Romans. And Paul has been put in prison. He's been beaten. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been uh, persecuted by his family. He's been persecuted by people he once called colleagues. You know, Paul's been through it. He's been through suffering, so he knows what he's talking about. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. So it's this idea that, that... God isn't going to waste our sufferings. He's actually using it to grow us and to um, make us more like him. 
and to help us understand who he is and to know him more, right? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. So it's this leaning on that hope of Christ. Now let's jump over to James. Different author, right? James. <clears throat> James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this, the trials and the, and, and the persecutions that people are going through, it produces steadfastness, this ability to stay with Christ and, and to know that. Okay, then I want to jump over to 1 Thessalonians 4. Now in Thessalonians, it's Paul again, and, and the Thessalonians have been dealing with persecution of some kind. Um, and 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. That means dead, more than likely. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So it always brings, brings us back to the ultimate fulfillment of our faith, which is that Christians believe that we will be with God forever, that this, it, this life isn't all that there is. So I, 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 I can just point you to the scriptures, Peter, that talk about this, um, where God can make terrible things work out for your benefit. And um, he uses trials and, and all of these different sufferings and things to purify us and, and to help us to develop our character and our perseverance and our hope. And ultimately, we know that this life is not all that there is. There is a future, a good future, and a good hope for us. Uh, I don't know. Do, do you have anything that you want to like? Yeah. That we Paul talks about how um, our sufferings associate us more with Christ because Christ was a man of suffering. Paul, yeah. Paul even likens like our suffering as a sacrifice of pleasing aroma unto God. Um, he says here in Philippians twenty nine. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I think some people would find that very difficult to, to hear today. Yes. So not, so this we repeat again. For it has not been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Mm -hmm. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Mm -hmm. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Long story short, 
part of this joy uh, through hardship and affliction is through your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of it. The love of one another, that the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, and, uh, and the love of uh, to know that Christ is in your, your brother, in your, in your church. That is a beautiful thing that will help you through those uh, times of conflict. And it will give you great joy to know that you're all together persevering to the end to see uh, for the hope and uh, to witness and to be there in glorification with Christ. So I would say that is another side to this. It's not just going through finding joy alone. It is with fellow believers. And that has always been the case since the beginning. With fellow believers, that's where joy can come out of. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one way uh, of finding that. Now, it's a little bit more difficult in dark times. But at the same time, God will find, if you pray and you're earnest and you're diligent, God will provide. And I'm convinced of that. Um, So that's another thing. It's just like in the togetherness of the spirit of being in one mind, that will uh, help you persevere in all joyness and build that character that Christ wants to see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Awesome. What do you, anything else you want to say on that? No. No? I don't think okay. so. Okay. The big question. The big question. Da, da, da. <laughs> All right. This is big, very controversial, of course, as always, as apparently everything is. Everything's the most controversial <laughs> thing ever. It's just history, right? Okay. So let's get to this. It's a viewer question from Lisa. In Acts, we read a lot about baptism. Some people, some people believe in infant baptism. Some people believe in adult baptism. Some uh, believe in sprinkling. Some believe in immersion. What is correct according to the Bible? How should we be baptized? Now, as a caveat to this, to make it very clear, there's other questions. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Does baptism save? And these other questions, that's not what we're addressing today. Right. We're addressing the process of baptism. Because I think we can, you could talk about baptism for hours. Or at least I, I, you so much, I don't know, not so much, but I could talk I about an, it for I hours. I get annoyed with you talking yes, about it. Yes, I know. Corey doesn't hours. like this kind of stuff. All right, so. <laughs> being honest. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, right, so Corey, what, do you, what say you? Infant baptism, adult baptism, sprinkling, immersion, what is the correct way, according to the Bible? How should we go about this? Yeah, so the, so the Bible doesn't give us like it just kind of assumes that we know the process of baptism when it talks about John the Baptist baptizing, when it talks about Jesus, you, you know, baptizing, and, um, and and then later Philip baptizing, and then Cornelius getting baptized. It just kind of assumes that we know the process. Um, from, from history, we can go back and we can look at, you know, get as close as we can to first century practices. And which were Jewish practices, right? They were first century Jewish practices. John the Baptist baptism uh, that Jesus and his disciples picked up on and, and, and as it morphed into Christian baptism uh, does seem to have been full immersion. Um, it, you know, uh, it, it, I've even heard a lot of um, New Testament historians talk about how they would have um, immersed themselves going forward and then coming up. That was apparently the proper way to do it. In first century Judaism, um, there was a lot more rules about it. It had to be something called living water, which was either um, a fresh flowing stream or it was rainwater that had been collected. The Didache says that too. Yes. Sorry, this is off topic, but yes. Yes. So it, a, lot of these, a lot of these traditions flowed over into early Christianity. Um, yeah, so, so I, I would say to add to this, okay, so I think the case for immersion, wow, what happened here, just like connecting to my 
<laughs> dry skin. And so, okay. I think the case yeah. for immersion is overwhelming. I, uh, I agree with you. I don't think... Um, here's the thing. I will say about sprinkling, though. Sprinkling is connected to Ezekiel and, and uh, this sprinkling of the blood. So it's like the concept sure. is there, conceptually. And I don't want to be, uh, you know, legalistic of being like, well, that's not truly baptized. You're not truly baptized. Mm -hmm. a, right? All, everyone who's ever been sprinkled is not truly baptized, therefore they're not saved. Like, no. Yeah, I'm not going think, down that road. I don't think that works, especially because there's so many, there's there's so many people who would not be able to be physically immersed. That's right. And in water. That's that's precisely right. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. So, uh, all these rules that we make, these arbitrary rules that we're like, you have to do it my way, yeah. or God's so, not gonna do it. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes. Isn't that God's decision? Isn't that God's call, whether or not that's acceptable? And remember back in 1 Samuel where God says he looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance? Better be really careful. Right. This, this, this sprinkling versus immersion, this is why I get annoyed with it because people get really heated on either end. And I'm just like, guys, I don't see the point in getting really heated on the other end. Although I do think that the evidence for immersion is overwhelming. But I mean, you got to so, do what so you got to do. You're dealing with what's optimal and what you can do. And yeah. so I, immersion based on the text and based on history, appears optimal. Yep. Then again, there's what, what are you going to do in this situation? So here's what, here for, for instance, let's take uh, Philip in the, in the Ethiopian eunuch. And when they came out of the water, mm -hmm. right? That's what it says there. The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Yep. They came out of the water. Yep. So it wasn't that you had sprinkled water on him. They were in the water and they came out. Okay. There's a reason why all the depictions of John the Baptist has him standing in the river. Yes, they're in the water. In the water. Right. So, <laughs> all right. So now let's take uh, Romans 6, 4. So to me, the imagery here, I think, is what yep. uh, helps as well. There's yep. other cases, but I, I, this is the ones that came to mind. Uh, okay, chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order just as, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Okay, two things to be, keep in mind there. Being buried and being raised in baptism. So you go into the water and you come out a new man. That whole concept there, again, is that you're being buried, you're coming coming to life. And who raises you out of the water? The priest, the pastor, the, the reverend. They pull you out of the water That's to symbolize, they themselves symbolize Christ. You not in your own works. There's nothing you did. You're receiving it, and you're still, right, and you come out. So it is a gift from God. So I think that's really important there. Um, so, again, but that's immersion, right? And then also, too, I think First Peter 3 highlights this. Okay, First Peter 3 is what talks about removal. It's not about the removal of dirt, right? It's, right? it's about uh, appealing for a clean conscience and stuff like that. That said, he, the, the, type, uh, the typology that's used is the flood. It's called an antitype. So what's the flood? People drowning in the water. So the, the uh, baptism is, a, is an antitype of the flood. It's, uh, so we Gentiles are products of wrath, let's say, uh, we're destined for the flood, or if we, were, if we were around before the flood happened, we would be in the flood. But now this whole idea, this whole nautical framework that comes to mind is you have fishers of men going around pulling people out of the water who are in the flood, who are destined for wrath, right? And bringing them to new life. So there was a flood, right? They're in the flood. They're drowning, basically. And Christ pulls them out of the water to save them. Again, immersion. So... Uh, either way, I, I think that just from those examples in imagery and just by 
the text just by straight historical account. Immersion is the uh, the historical original method of baptism. Um, having said that, now that's the second part of the question. First part is infant baptism versus adult baptism. Okay, so for me particularly, uh, there's several times in Acts where it says you will be saved and your whole and your whole household will be saved, or uh, Cornelius was baptized, or Lydia was baptized, right? And then their household was baptized, right? So in that though, in that statement, I I'm not saying that that is a, a clear cut case for infant baptism. I don't think it says either way. Yeah, I, well, like let, let's look for example at Acts chapter ten. Sure. While Peter, so this is when he's in Cornelius's house. Yeah. And Peter is preaching right. to Cornelius's house. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on who? On all who heard the word. Right. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Right. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So if we're going to use this as, as proof of infant baptism, how could an infant have heard the word and how could they have begun speaking in tongues and extolling God? That right. would be a feat for an infant yeah. to be speaking in tongues and extolling God well, because that was the sign yes. that they had received. Because it doesn't, it doesn't say his entire house. It says all who heard the word. Right. Right? Uh, no, no, first, yes. And um, so I think, I think it's not, I, I don't think you can use Cornelius Cornelius's case no, by saying, can't. well, there was clearly well, babies there. Well, you, that... so, okay, so here's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. You can't say, let's take Acts 18, verses 8, okay? Sure. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed the Lord yep. together with the entire household. Yep. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized, okay? It says here his entire household. Now, does that mean exclusion of babies or does that mean and babies? It doesn't but say. Think, it, do, it doesn't but I, say. But I, but I think it. I, I think it. Okay. This. This is my opinion. Right. Warning. Here is my opinion. Okay. I think it would have been taken as obvious that you don't take a baby who has no reasoning and no ability to speak right. and no ability to consent. I know consent is a modern word, but but no no ability to repent. To believe and repent. And dunk them in water because historically it's immersion. Right. Right. So. While it's possible, I don't think it's very plausible. Okay. And that is that is absolutely my opinion here. I know there's a lot of people who disagree. Right. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with disagreement. But you can't, everywhere that the New Testament talks about baptism, it talks about repentance. Repent and be baptized. Right. Repent and be baptized. A baby cannot repent. Right. So... And I, I, I don't so, see any clear-cut cases right. of infant baptism anywhere that I look in the scripture. So I think it comes down to um, how someone sees the promises of a God um, for your household, like for, mm -hmm. for your children. So mm -hmm. for instance, let's take Acts 16, where is this? Um, verse 31. Yeah. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Yep. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all 
who were in his house. Mm -hmm. And he took them in the same hour of the same night and washed their wounds. And he baptized them at once, he and all his family. Mm -hmm. so you see the believing and the baptism. Yeah. Um, he and all of his family. So what's interesting there is that uh, the promises of a God are for him and his household. So it's one of those things in my mind that uh, if you believe that, okay, well, so you, you go through this process of getting water baptized, right? And, and the child does because you believe that God will save your child. If that's the way you're looking at it, is that God, the promises of God promise me and my household are, belong to him, mm -hmm. then you're attaching the promise of baptism as that, as that act to the child. Yeah. And so I think that's what it comes down to, that Here, understanding there. Here's the problem though. Like okay. We know that, okay, so in the ancient world, households were seen, it was much more of a group culture right. in terms of honor and shame. And you were very associated. So if the head of your household converted, you were you were probably expected uh, socially to, to do that as well. But we know there are cases where that's not true. For example, in the case of Timothy, yeah. right? So Timothy, uh, when we look at Acts, um, and we look at the books, the books of Timothy that Paul wrote to Timothy. We know that Timothy was um, Jewish because his mother was Jewish, yeah. but his father was a Gentile. He was Greek, and we're told that he was never circumcised. So his father didn't was not a Jew. Right. And then when Paul talks to Timothy about his faith, he says, "You were your faith was passed on by your grandmother." And your mother, mm. but not your father. Right. So we know in Timothy's case, he did not follow the religious views of his father. Right. Instead, his household was a split household. Right. So there's cases where that wasn't true. So it really depends on how you see baptism here. Mm. If you see baptism as an as an initiatory, like as an initiatory rite that's connected with salvation. I really don't think it's an appropriate thing to do to children right, so, so, in terms of, in terms of because because they aren't they they aren't themselves making that right. conscious decision and may come of age and decide or, against it or even in the context of you because you receive that you receive the God's glory mm -hmm. being aware and, and remembering that I think is very valuable definitely I, I, valuable, I think yeah. that there's there's merit to even just the fact that my child will remember the day he was baptized. Yeah. Um, and there's no fault in my in my view on the infant who has no moral responsibility. He has no he can't and cannot do anything. He's yeah. completely contingent on the on the parents. There's no there's no fault in the in the child if he's not baptized. That's not yeah. the child's fault. That's the parents' fault. Like I I absolutely absolutely agree with raising your child as if they are in the kingdom of God. Like right. teaching them about God, teaching them the scriptures. Obviously, I mean that's all throughout. That is all throughout the Bible, but we are not Israel in the sense of, in the sense of we biologically pass on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not that anymore. It's by who accepts the the work of Christ. Right. And so our children will have to accept the work of Christ when they are able to accept the work of Christ. They're not going to get into heaven or get into the kingdom of God because they are our children, even though we yes. both have accepted the grace of God, you know, through yes. Jesus Christ. Now we are praying for our children. We are trying to raise them the, the best way that we can. And, and I believe that God is faithful and that he will do that. Uh, so 
what I'm just trying to clarify what I mean here. Yes. Where I'm not anti, I'm, I'm not going to tell you it's the worst thing in the world to baptize your children, but I question the efficacy of it because in my mind, everywhere you see baptism, it, Christian baptism in the scripture, it's repent and be baptized. It has to do with that, even in these household conversions. Right. Like, for example, when we, when we, the, really the only up close and personal example that we get of a household conversion, there, there are other examples that are mentioned, but we, is Cornelius, where it says all who heard received yeah, the no, Holy Spirit and you. they were baptized. Okay. So to add more to this, because I think yeah. that the, what gets people hung up too, so when they hear infant baptism, they think once saved, always saved. Yeah. And now for, let's say, our, our Orthodox and our Catholic brothers, they don't believe that. Yep. So it's kind of like, okay, that's not, that's strictly a, a Protestant thing. So it's like, if yes. you were to baptize a baby, like, oh, you're saved. Once saved, always saved. Mm-hmm. For through the baptism, I think that's very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> I think because then it's like, it doesn't matter what you do. You have um, no choice. You're in now. You're in, and it's just the we way it is. your choice from you. Well, I don't think it's really... Yeah, well, it's, it's the if choice. You go, if you go absurd if with it's it, a good, if you go extreme with it. Yeah, I don't, see, yeah, okay. But <laughs> I, I don't mind the fact that if you, like, you you tell your child to do something because it's good for them, regardless of, of the yes, choice. Yes, but, but I don't one think it really day, boils down to choices. One day they will have to make a choice because you can't, even if they live externally a certain way, God sees the heart, right? Yes. God sees the heart of each individual person. Yes. And if we... He can, he can say, I don't he think... can say when you, when you look at it, like people can, he says that people are going to come to him and say, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. Yes. I performed miracles in your name. Yes. I did this, I did that. And he's going to say, go get away. I never knew you. Yes. So there has to be a personal acceptance of Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, a, a, a personal repentance. Yeah. I, I, I won't, I'm, I, I hesitate to boil it down to just the choice. I hesitate to that. I don't think it boils down. Because there's so there's people who are obeying the scriptures, and and they're doing that right, and Christ is their Lord, but they're not doing it, let's say, to the fullest, but they're still obeying Christ. Um, and so, Sorry, and I'm even, not sure and, how that's different. And from even or even obeying your parents, let's say, through Christ. Sure. So I I hesitate to say it boils down to the choice because I think people can be intuitive believers without being consciously aware of the choices they make. Depends if you, and this gets too deep, but depends if you mean that the choice is conscious or if it's unconscious. Because oh, you but, can but have unconscious choices. But if you're, but if you're, if you're raised in a Christian context, if you are not, I'm, I'm confused to what you're saying. You could, because if you, you can unconsciously believe in something. If you're, if you're following all the rules, but you aren't actually, you don't actually think that you're a sinner saved by grace, what you are you trying might, to say here? You might not have faith yet, but you're following your parents, you're listening to your parents, and you're following the scriptures. Oh, that's but not what I'm talking about. I know, but I'm saying there's a, there's a nuance in between there. I'm not trying to get too deep into it. Yeah. I just That's why I say I hesitate to say it boils down to choice, because it is something that we're receiving also, because mm-hmm. we don't just get it. We don't go get baptism. We don't go get salvation. We, we receive it. Mm-hmm. So um, either way, but obviously there is a choice. I'm not saying there isn't. I just hesitate to boil it down to that one choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from that, uh, you have inf- uh, between infant and adults. I think what we're what it really comes down to as well is that we talked about the eternal security thing. Is it eternal security? Once saved, always saved. I think that's problematic. But also to our understanding of what baptism does. Like, yeah. does baptism represent a marriage? Like, are we like by being baptized, you know, married into the family? And because it's not about once saved, always saved, it's about your whole life is you're being saved your, throughout your whole life. 
then you can kind of understand why some people don't have a problem with infant baptism. Yep. Because throughout your whole, it's not about, oh, you're saved this one moment. That's great. It's about your whole life is dedicated to God every single day and daily repentance. And because it's a holistic thing from point A to point Z, um, you can kind of see why people said, okay, well, it's inaugural. So if someone sees baptism as, say, just symbolic, I don't see an issue with someone saying, well, it's symbolic so we can infant baptize because it, this represents them, the, uh, the promises that are guaranteed, their, for the promises towards their parents, and now we will train them up within the community of believers. It becomes a symbol at that point of what's happening. So I, I don't see personally the particular issue, uh, but I also yeah. don't see it. I also see the tremendous value if, if you truly believe there's something effectual in the water, or not in the, that God is using water for act. baptism. The, 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 yes, because you're saying, I Otherwise, repent, I believe. Matter. If I repent and I believe, and then, right, and, I, and you go and you get baptized, there's something about remembering that that I think is so vitally important. Yeah. And, and so I, and that's what I'm trying and, to say. I'm trying a, to be and respectful. It's a, and it's a public declaration of, of your belief, or at least it, at least it was well, in yeah. the New Testament. It was a public, it was a public statement of conversion. And at least it was. It was an act of spiritual warfare. Also, I yes, but I guess what I'm saying here is that um, at the end of this, I can say I can understand why the infant baptism approach works in that concept of being saved throughout your whole life. Sure, because it's not about one moment and then that's it. I'm saved. I don't have to do it. Like, whatever. Yeah, it's look, about yeah. Look, but I'm not trying to demonize infant baptism. Yeah, I'm I know. Just yeah. saying, what do I think? Because that's what this question is. Yes. And how should you What go do about? I think is the most biblical approach to right. baptism? And I think the most biblical approach to baptism is immersion of, of non-infants, uh, of people who can... Reason who, and... Who, who, who understand sin. what sin is right. and can repent of that. They understand that they are a sinner and that they need a savior and they repent and ask Christ. They repent to God and receive Christ's righteousness right. and receive him as their Lord and have that understanding. That's what I see well, Peter says most it. represented and be baptized. in the scripture. Right. So that's what I believe is the most faithful. As I'm not I think trying to demonize no, I didn't think you were. I know people and people have reasons and there are traditions that are not apostate yeah. that that are, are different than this. Yeah. But if the question is what is most biblical, that's what I think. No, I think, and Peter says, repent and be baptized yes. for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes. That is like, that's the whole thing. That's what John was teaching, right? That's what Jesus was teaching. Yes. And so it, it is boiling. <clears throat> so this idea of infancy comes down to like I did, our understanding of how that works throughout your life. And I don't want to say that it's entirely wrong because it is a, a lifelong uh, commitment to Christ. It's yes. not a moment. And, and, um, also, I know that it, I know that experience isn't everything. So I'm sure there are people who were in, who were baptized as infants, and and they hold that as very precious to them. I was not baptized as an infant, but I was raised in a Christian home, and I literally just part of my testimony here. I don't remember a day when I didn't love God or think that God was real, and I thank Him so often for that. I thank Him that I was raised that way, and my life was a process of coming to understanding and realization of God. And realization of Jesus and who he was. And 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 um, I was baptized when I was 16. And it was very, very, very impactful to me yes. that I that that the act of publicly and inviting people that 
from that didn't know Christ right. and inviting people that did know Christ and getting baptized and, and declaring it to the world and, and, and having that moment of repentance was very, very important to me. Yes. Uh, and so I, I think, I, I, that's just my experience. I, that is where I'm coming okay, from. Okay, so I'll, I'll say my experience. And this is the part of the reason why I think it's very valuable to remember your baptism because it splits. There's, a, in, in my experience, okay, so I wasn't catechized I, before baptism. I just kind of was like, I'm getting baptized. I think it's the right thing to do. <laughs> okay. And I wasn't told anything about it. I knew nothing of it. So then I get baptized by your dad, right? Mm-hmm. Get baptized. I come out and, um, I distinctly remember feeling clean on the inside, like yeah. 100% clean. And I thought that was the weirdest feeling. Because first of all, I didn't know what the heck was going on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I wasn't like, I didn't you go didn't to youth expect group. It. I didn't expect yeah. it. it didn't, I wasn't in youth group. I wasn't involved in that stuff, okay? Anyways, and I was like, like and I remember for weeks, I had this feeling of, like, I felt like my soul was clean. I felt clean on the inside. I don't know how you explain that. Anyways, and then, I like really didn't want to do something wrong. Like I was scared to do something wrong. And as soon as I did, I remember I I can't remember what the lie was about. It was a little minor lie to my parents or something. I felt so dirty. And I was like, oh, like I felt the inside was dirty. Anyways, long story short, uh, you, you get stained, more stained, more stained, and that's not good. And years later, when I ended up, uh, you know, leaving the faith for a bit, consciously in my head, I was like, oh, well, I just don't believe that these things are real. For long stories, too long to recount now. But... I would always recount my baptism as an actual spiritual thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And so I would be comparing the, mo- like, like because I was looking at all these other religions, all these different things, and I'd be like, okay, well, there was something actually that happened here. I became a religious pluralist, so I was kind of being like, what is these other religions? Probably there's something true here. Like, why aren't they true? Like, why, why, are they, why is everything else false? Anyways, um, but I couldn't shake that there was something real in my baptism. And eventually that ended up being something that my part of my return. So there was something real there that there was split who I was for who I was supposed to be. Anyways, so with that in mind, if I was about as an infant, I wouldn't have that, 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 that split. I wouldn't know what that would be like. So I think there's very, so for me personally, that is valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, we could talk about how young it could be, whether a child, I, I think that's nuanced. I think in terms of, uh, yeah, it definitely has to be nuanced because there has to be that understanding of sin. And that's right. going to be a little bit different, I think, for each person, their their understanding. And if God brings them to that place of repentance when they're young, what are you going to do? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think yeah. that is a more nuanced discussion that has to be more of a more of an individual right. kind of approach. Right. And I know there's so much more to discuss we haven't got into, like, there's so much more we haven't got into. But <laughs> I, I, think it, I, I think it's so good enough for now. There's so much more. Um, I want to know what you guys think. Do you want to know? I want to know what they think. Sure. Please pop it down in the comments below. I want to know your your thoughts on all these things, on the Sabbath, on baptism, infants versus adult versus immersion versus sprinkle. Let me know. Let me know what you think. What, what, what tradition did you grow up in? Christian tradition. Um, were you baptized as an infant? Pop, pop, pop it down below. I want to read it. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, we'll see you next week. Until then, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.